God's word in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17 says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Lord, may we not just be hearers of your word, but may we go out and be doers. May we heed what you have given us as a good light for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Frank Crawford Armstrong was born in 1835. And when he became an adult, he joined the military. When the Civil War broke out, he had the rank of captain, and he led his men against the Confederates at the Battle of Manassas. Yet for some reason after that, Armstrong had a change of heart. Thus he resigned his commission, he headed south, and he commissioned with the Confederacy. In fact, it took three days for his resignation to be completed, so for three days he was a paid officer in both sides of the war. Armstrong's change of heart led to a change of geographical location, a change in who was friend and who was enemy, and a change in uniform. The deep blue of the Union was taken off and the gray of the Confederacy put on. So Armstrong's change of mind led to changes in his life. What changes occur or should occur when someone becomes a Christian? Do they need a new location? Do they need a new vocation? Do they need a new wardrobe? You know, if someone becomes a Sikh, at least a male, you can tell by his head garment. If someone joins the Amish, you can tell by their clothing. Is there any distinct attire for a Christian? Well, in our passage today, Paul will argue that there is an attire for Christians that should be put on and an attire that should be put off. However, it's not the physical clothes that we wear, per se, but rather the mindset, attitudes, and actions that must change. Another way of saying this is God's saving us should cause us to seek to end our old sinful lifestyle and instead to live a new godly lifestyle. To reiterate, the emphasis of the passage this morning and the sermon is God's saving us should cause us to seek to end our old sinful lifestyle and instead to live a new godly lifestyle. If you have a bulletin, you can see on the back the three parts of this passage. First, in verses 17 through 19, there's the former futile walk. And then in verses 20 through 21, the true teaching of Christ. And then lastly, the change of clothing in verses 22 through 24. Now this passage begins in verse 17 with the transition. Now I say... Now, before this, he'd been talking how we grow as a church when we hear the truth and then we speak the truth in love to one another. And now he's going to give some ways that that should manifest itself. 
he's here in these verses going to kind of give broad general instructions and then beginning in verse 25 through the end of or most of chapter 6 I should say he's going to give specific applications of what this will look like but notice he doesn't just say I say but he says he testifies in the Lord and Paul's conveying that as an apostle he's not just speaking for himself he's not just sharing his opinion he's sharing what Christ wants us to hear Jesus promised, John 14, John 16, that the Spirit would come and he would guide his apostles in what he wanted us to hear. Paul emphasized this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul is saying, it's not just my words you're hearing, you're hearing the words of of Christ. And Jesus' message is that they should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Now, no longer is implying something, and that is they used to walk this way. But now that lifestyle has ended, and they should continue to keep it ended. Now, it's interesting. Paul uses Gentiles here, but most of these people were Gentiles. So he's talking spiritually how there's neither Jew nor Gentile, and how in Christ, when we trust in Christ, we are all made children of Abraham and Jews spiritually. So Gentiles here is being used spiritually. And it talks about their futile walk, the same word used in the Greek Septuagint in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, futility of futility. And like Ecclesiastes here, Paul's saying, look, if you live a life focused on anything but God, it's going to be a life that is empty, that's futile and worthless. It would be like a desert nomad hunting for orange trees or a mountain hiker searching for lobsters among the cliffs. It's a futile search. You're never going to find what you're looking for. And Paul's saying, likewise, if you're searching for meaning, if you're searching for purpose in life outside of God, it is a futile effort. Not only futile, but he then lays out in verses 18 and following how it's going to be destructive. He gives this threefold digression of the futile, godless, Gentile life. First, their minds were darkened. You know, the Bible states that one of the effects of sin is that our minds no longer see everything accurately. We're in the darkness and we need the light. Keith read this for us earlier in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. But thankfully, Jesus came into the world. And as he said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but walk in the light of life. You're having darkened minds. This then digresses to the second thing, that they were alienated from the life of God through their ignorance. Now, this is not an ignorance that can be fixed by education. Rather, it's an ignorance that wants to be ignorant. They don't want to believe. Some of you may have read Aldous Huxley's book, Brave New World, a dystopian novel of how the world gets to a certain place. Well, he also was a philosopher and wrote some books, and one of them he writes 
was entitled Ends and Means. And in it, he's very honest about why he was an atheist and why he believed there was meaninglessness in life. Aldous Huxley writes, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, and consequently assumed that it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do so as he wants to do. For myself, Huxley writes, as no doubt for many of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. In other words, Huxley's just being very honest. Look, I believe there's no meaning in life, because if there's no meaning in life, I can do whatever I want. Now, uh, let me be clear. I'm not saying all atheists believe that. I'm sure there's very many atheists who are very sincere. They truly believe there is no God. But rather, Huxley is demonstrating here Paul's point that he hardened his mind because he didn't want to believe. You know, it's not just irreligious people or unreligious people who are like that. Even religious people will harden their minds to the truth. You know, in Mark 3, Jesus encounters a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. And so he asks the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Well, Mark records that Jesus was grieved by their hardness of heart because they didn't want to have Jesus heal because it was a Sabbath. They didn't want to give up their man-made rules, and so they didn't say anything, and Jesus was sad. But then the story gets worse, because when Jesus heals the man, they don't then praise God, because look, this person who couldn't use his hand for years now gets to use it. Neither do they say, maybe we should reconsider who this person is. He just like literally caused someone's hand to be healed. No, the passage then says that they go out and gather with the Herodians how they might put Jesus to death. They just saw a miracle before their eyes, and what do they want to do? Well, they want to gather with the very people who are opposed to their own political ideas. You know, Pharisees, they want to be pure. They want their nation to have no uncleanness, like the Romans, like Herod. Well, the Herodians, you can hear what they support in their name. They support Herod. They want Herod and his rule. Well, the Pharisees are so against Christ that they will join with their political enemies because they will not soften to Christ. Their hardness of heart keeps them from it. You know, sadly, even today, there are many religious people, many people who take the name Christian, who will do anything but bow the knee to Jesus. They go to church. They know Bible verses. They know theology. They maybe even have leadership positions in churches. Yet they don't want to submit their life to Christ. Well, this leads in verse 19 to the third digression. Their futile minds become callous, so they gave themselves up to sensuality and are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, of course, here Paul is speaking in generalizations. We can find people who are trying to be moral in every society. But generally, the society then and the society now is eager to pursue whatever they desire. Like Scrooge McDuck loving to jump into his pool of money, so the Gentiles love to dive into their sins. You know, we were in Ohio before this, 
And the church we were at had a missionary house, and various missionaries, when they were in the States, could come and stay at the home. Well, one missionary came from Mali in West Africa, and he told me he would interact with the various tribes, and often they were very generous, and they would invite him, invite him to have meals with them. Well, he loved this except for one thing. They would cook their meals, and then they would pour it in one big, long container. And then they would cup their hands and scoop their hands in and eat. Now, besides the lack of decorum by American standards and the lack of hygiene by American standards, there was one other problem. It was too hot for him. When he put his hands in, it was burning hot. But they, over the years, had become sensitized or desensitized to the heat. So they could have the steaming hot food and they're going in and his hands had not become calloused in that way. You know, calluses can be good or bad. A callus can keep your hands from blisters, but a callus is also removing sensitivity. And sometimes the calluses are what 1 Timothy 4.12 tells of, and that is a seared conscience. The nerve endings of our conscience have been so abused, they no longer trigger and warn us of the wrongness of our actions. Sadly, we all know how this works. Whether you're a child now or a child before, you had your parents leave the house. And then that thing you wanted to do is available. And you sit there and you think, I'm not going to do it, I want to obey. And then you do it. And as you're going to do it, your body's, you're almost like shaking, you're so nervous. And then afterwards, you just feel so guilty. And you're, why did I do that? Why did that? And then you start rationalizing, you know what? It was wrong. But I don't need to tell my parents because I'll never do it again. And you promise yourself, okay, I'm good. I'll never do it again. And then your parents leave another time. And the lure of temptation arises. And you go, and you're struggling, and you do it again. And you're, maybe I should tell my parents. But then, you know, I, never, I promise I'll never do it again. And then you know what? The next time, you don't fight it as much. And you don't feel as guilty. And then time after that and time after that, you just do it. You have seared your conscience. The thing that should be sending off warning bells that at one point was, you have so deadened it that the good thing God has given you is no longer coming in. And that is what Paul is saying is going on in the Gentile culture. They have become callous to their sin. And with the loss of moral nerve endings, they greedily pursue every sinful desire of their heart. And we all know this is not just in Ephesus in the first century. In 2016, the computer animated movie Zootopia came out, and the theme song was, Try Everything. Now, they may not have literally meant try everything, but the underlying premise was the only thing that should stop you from trying something is, you don't want to do it. You should do everything you want. The only limit is you. And what are some of the phrases of our culture? Don't knock it till you tried it. You've got to try it for yourself. And what do we tell young people? Look, you need to explore. If you want to do something, just explore. Test out the possibilities. Don't tell other people that's right or wrong. Everyone should just explore for themselves and discover what is right. Yet there is a God who loves us. 
And he warns us that if we pursue every impulse that seems worth exploring, we are only going to hurt ourselves. And the point here in these verses is that our sin, our selfishness, that doesn't seek God and seeks meaning outside of God, it's ruining us. We turn the creation into the creator. We think that's going to give us meaning. That's going to give us hope. And yet, pursuing purely physical pleasures, pursuing greed, all kinds of impurity, it's only degrading us. You know, Saint Augustine, we're all saints, so I shouldn't call him a saint, but Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. And so there is another hope. Paul is warning, look, don't just keep going after life the way the Gentiles do. You know what that's like, and it's not going to give hope. But rather, you've learned a different thing. You've learned the true teaching of Christ. We see that in verses 20 and 21, the true teaching of Christ. It says in verse 20, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so Paul makes this strong contrast. Look, this is the way you were, but you learned a better path. You learned a better way. They had received this message not just from Paul, though, but from Christ. Now, this is interesting because many of them never met Jesus Christ. So how did they hear from Christ? Well, first they're hearing from Christ because it's the same content of the message. When Jesus was on earth, we read in Mark 1.15 that he proclaimed, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Your repentance is just a change of mind. And if you change your mind, it's going to lead to a change in actions. And Christ called people to that. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, Jesus' message was one of turning from our own sinful desires, dying to ourself, and then following him. Jesus, Jesus also said, look, this is the message we were are to proclaim. When he left his disciples, Luke 24, 47, he says, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. This is the message of Jesus. And so the message that the Ephesians heard, though it was not directly from the lips of Jesus, was Jesus' message because the content was the same. But not only that, second, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke ten sixteen. The one who hears you hears me. If you hear Jesus' commands, Jesus' words from anyone and you listen, you are actually hearing from Jesus himself. He continues, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects him who sent me. So if the message of Jesus is faithfully proclaimed by anyone, you are hearing from Jesus. And to reject that message is to reject Jesus. And to respond is to respond to Jesus. This is part of why Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This raises the issue of whether the Ephesians had in reality heard Jesus and were taught by him. You know, the New Testament often challenges us to consider if our life matches up with the teaching. For example, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. 
Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. You know, do you have a desire to obey Christ in all things? Now, of course, none of us always desires that. There is the battle that Romans 7 describes. Yet, do you basically want to run your life your own way? Or do you want to submit to your life to God's way? If you don't want to submit to God, then no matter what you've done before, then you should wonder if you are truly a Christian. You might pray. You might go to church. You might know a lot of the Bible. You might know a lot of theology. But if your heart is not inclined to follow Christ, then you should wonder if you are genuinely saved. You should recognize the danger you're in and make sure you are truly in the faith. Submit your life to Christ. Know that you must die to yourself, but yes, it'll raise you to newness of life. And you should do this not because I'm saying this, but notice what it says at the end of verse 21. Because the truth is in Jesus. Jesus is not a truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, if you want to live your life in the truth, then it's to follow Jesus. Yeah, when I was in college, there was a prominent evangelical church in the town that I was in that actively taught, look, well, obeying God is good. It's going to bless your life. It's not really essential. Yet, the, their argument was obedience was an essential part of being a Christian, but it will bless it. And they argued this because they rightly wanted to uphold, we are saved by grace alone. And we've seen that. Let's flip back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, our salvation is all because of God's gracious, glorious character. Yet, I would argue, though they thought they were preserving God's grace to say, look, obedience isn't essential, it doesn't matter, I would argue they were undermining God's grace. Their view of God's grace was purely for cleansing, not for a new creation with new desires. Their grace only forgave, it didn't change us. Because notice what it says next in verse 10. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's grace changes us. You know, if God has saved you, then the marks of his workmanship, notice verse 10, for we are his workmanship, the marks of his workmanship should be seen in your life. Now, I'm not an artist. Royal's an artist. But even me, uh, art nincompoop, can recognize if it's a Rembrandt, Monet, a Van Gogh, you know, the very famous people. You know, but an art scholar, Royal, if he saw a painting, he could go, oh, well, that's a Monet, because then he could point out the color and the lighting and the brush strokes and the various things. That's just so obvious. That's a Monet. And the rest of us, well, me, would go, I think it's a Monet. It looks like one. You know, God's workmanship should be seen in everyone's life. There's distinctive things about the way God works in people's life that you can go, that's a child of God. 
Look at the way they do this. Look at their attitudes. Look at this. I can clearly see that they have been made new. You know, if you are saved, then you should see the work of God, His workmanship in your life. You should have a desire, not a perfection, but a desire to say no to the sinful desires in your life and a desire to say yes to the godly desires in your life. Well, and yet you might be thinking, well, there is a part of me that wants to do that, but it's so hard. How do we do that? Well, that's what we see last in verses 22 through 24. We need to have a change of clothing. Verses 22 through 24 of Ephesians 4, we read it again. It says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul lists three things that they and we must do to live a life that honors God. And they all begin with the... Uh, preposition two. First, they are to put off their former lifestyle that matched their old man, their old sinful lifestyle. And here the word Paul uses to put off is a word used for taking off clothing. You know, we mentioned earlier the Civil War officer who switched sides and thus he had to switch uniforms. You know, Christians are not known for our physical clothing, though, but our lifestyle. We should take off so to speak, that old lifestyle, set it aside. Well, what's the second thing we need to do? Well, second, once we've put off those lifestyles, we're to be renewed by the spirit of the mind. He says that to be renewed, the spirit of your mind, verse 23. And I know in our church we emphasize this a lot, but it is essential to realize that change in your life is only going to occur through your mind. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Willpower, exertion, effort is not enough to change your behavior. The threat of punishment is not sufficient to change behavior from the heart. God honoring biblical change occurs through a changed mind. Third, we see in verse 24, this should then lead to putting on the new self. If you read Christian history, you'll know that early on when Christians were baptized, they would first go and they would take off their old outer garments. Then they would be baptized and they would be given a new white robe as they came out of the waters. What they were symbolizing was, look, you go in old and you come out forgiven and clean and pure with the desire to live for God. And here we're seeing God desires holy actions in our life. We are to put on the new self. We're not just to avoid a list of sins. And I think this is really important to remember because sometimes Christians give the impression that a life that honors God is just avoiding a bunch of things. Well, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with those who do. I don't think that's the best saying, but nonetheless, it was a saying that existed for some time. As long as you avoid these things, you're a godly person. But Paul didn't just say put off. He also said, renew your mind and put on. You know, as I said earlier, this is kind of the foundation theoretical teaching. And then beginning of verse 25, Paul's going to give some specific applications. Let's just quickly note too. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 let the thief no longer steal. Okay, that's the putting off. Don't do this thing. 
And we might end there, but Paul doesn't. Notice how he continues. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So what God desires in your life is not only, don't be a thief, which I hope you're not, but also, you need to work. Well, why? Well, providing for your family is good, but that's not what he says here. He says so that you can then be a generous person, so that you can be a person who shares with others. You need to put on righteous behavior. (coughs) Or look down at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Okay, that's the bad thing. Don't do that. Don't say these words that corrupt, that destroy. And we might end there. But that's not where Paul ends. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Probably all of, almost all of us heard growing up, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And Paul would say, and then... Consider how by God's grace you may learn how to say something nice to that person. You know, we are not just to avoid being ugly. We are to, by God's grace, learn how to be loving. How do we bless this person who makes us want to curse them? Well, that's what God desires in our life. When Paul adds, if you look back in verses 22 through 24, that this new self we have, it's created by God. And this highlights that the change we need can't and won't begin with ourselves. You know, I say that because no one is self-born. No one ever gave birth to themselves. Rather, our physical and spiritual birth were events in which God acted, in which we had no say. You know, none of us had a catalog of parents that we wanted to choose from. Eh, I want parents in... Corpus Christi, and I want the middle class family, and I want two siblings, and I want this type of hair. We were born. And if you're a Christian, you were born again by the grace of God. Now, yes, you responded. Yes, you said, I believe, and you wanted it. But it was by God's initiative. So as we go through all these things of change that we are to do, it's all because God acted first in our life. You know, and Paul says this very succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And when something is new, there's evidence of it. You know, the new baby breathes and cries. And if neither of those occur, then we think the child's probably not alive. And if you've trusted in Christ, there should be spiritual breasts spiritual cries, and if neither of those occur, you should wonder, am I truly born again? But notice how this new creation is happening, what it's in line with, we might say. Verse 24, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. God made everyone, male and female, in his likeness, or we might say his image, Yet due to our sin, we are now a marred image of God. Children, you may not know what we're talking about, but as parents remember a time when you would take a picture and you would then go to this place and they would develop it. It took a long time. And then you would have the picture in your hands. And sometimes you would have a stack of pictures and someone would spill something. And if you didn't get there quick enough, the ink would all blur and spread. 
And you could look at it and go, yeah, that's, was that when we were in California or Colorado? You could kind of make out what was there, but it was blurry. It was all distorted. Well, that's what we are now. We are still God's image. That picture still shows you, but it's eh, not exactly the way it should be. Sin marred God's image, but it didn't remove it. That's why God told Noah, if someone's life is taken, their life should be taken because mankind still bears the image of God. And yet the good news is that Jesus, God's son, came and perfectly reflected God's image to this world. Hebrews 1.3 states that Christ so revealed the Father to us that he is the Father's exact imprint. He is the perfect replica now, some of you have probably used a photocopier. You go and you put the paper down and you close the lid and psh, hit the button. and psh, psh. Well, the copy that comes out is only as good as what you put on top. If you put a blurry image on, it doesn't get clearer on the photocopier. And what do we do? Well, we're all God's image and we keep creating more and more blurred images of God. What we needed was a perfect image of God to come and recreate us. Because the creation is only going to be good as the original that was there for it. And so Jesus, the perfect image of God, is recreating us so that we can be like the perfect images of God we were made to be. And what is that like? Well, he tells us in verse 22 that we're... I'm sorry, in verse 24, that we're made into true righteousness and holiness. No longer the deceitful desires of verse 22, but we are living what is true. As we even say on our wall over here, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And again, we should note here that this is active. We should be doing this. These are present tense verbs. This is not past tense. In other words, this is not something you did once you didn't in the past go okay now i'm i'm a holy person every day we are putting off the old sinful desires we're renewing our mind and we're putting on actions that reflect christ you know, on a trip you start your car once but then you constantly use the accelerator likewise our conversion was the jumping jump starting you might say of the dead car and now, by the Holy Spirit's empowering, we must keep using the accelerator of the renewing of our mind and new actions. We don't just have the car started and then sit in our driveway and go, it's nice to be in a running car, isn't it? Boy, this is great. No, you were starting the car to go. You were born again by God to live a life that honors Him. So is your spiritual car in gear and going? Or in other words, are you seeking to grow spiritually? How are you seeking not just to avoid sin, but to live righteously? Not what have you done in the past, but what are you doing now? What are your plans this summer to grow in your knowledge of God? Are you putting as much effort into your spiritual growth as your physical? 1 Timothy 4.7 says, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Do you care more for your body, how it functions, how it looks, how it feels, than you care for your soul? Or 
Are you perhaps an expert at cooking meals everyone loves? You know the right sauces, you know the right searing, you know everything. Oh, perfect. But you don't take the time to feed your own or their souls. And let me here make a specific plug. We got a parenting class starting June 4th. What a way to renew your minds. You know, issues with parenting, they arise as soon as you have a child. And they will continue until you or your child, children are gone. How are you going to parent? Or how are you going to counsel your friends who are parenting and come to you and go, Oh, I'm so... Uh... Well, if you don't take time to think about how we should parent, then you will most likely parent like your parents did, mixed in with some worldly wisdom that we just kind of soak up. As we hear from the so-called parenting experts, we all need growth. In the summer, we hope to look at God's Word. How do we apply putting to death the bad ways we parent? Because yes, kids, we make mistakes. How do we renew our minds so that we know what God wants us to do? And how do we put that into actual practice so we can honor God in the way we seek to reflect Him in our parenting? Now that class may not be for all of you. Timing might be horrible or you maybe just can't make it. But how are you seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, let me conclude, though, by clarifying <clears throat> one potential misunderstanding I mentioned earlier Aldous Huxley, the philosopher and author of Brave New World. And near the end of his life, he observed, It's a bit embarrassing to have been concerned with the human problem all of one's life, and at the end, find that one has no more to offer by way of advice than try to be a little kinder. You know, sadly, I think many people have confused Christianity with that message. You may even be at the end of this sermon and think, well, yeah, the pastor is just kind of urging us all to be moral, kind people. I remember talking to a man once about the truths of Christianity, and his response was, look, all religions, you're all the same. You're all just basically saying, be good, kind people. Well, that is not the message of Christianity, nor the main thrust of our passage today. The main thrust here is God's saving us should cause us to seek our old, to end our old sinful lifestyle. And instead to live a new godly lifestyle. The message of Christianity is not just be moral. It's that God made you for a purpose. To reflect and glorify him. That is a life worth living. And yet we're unable to do that because we're dead in our sin. Yes, anyone, you don't need to be a Christian to become nicer or kinder. But the lifestyle that God calls us to can only be lived if you are re created. In other words, what we're talking about today is exhortation for saved people. This is not a message on how you are to be saved. That is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. That's by God's grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not the what you're doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of anything that you do so that you can boast. This is, well, how do we respond to that glorious message? Remember Frank Crawford Armstrong again. The man who switched from being in the Union to joining the Confederacy. And imagine what his men in the Confederacy would have thought if he walked around the camp in his Union uniform. His pleas of, hey guys, what's the big deal? It's just some clothes. I'm with y'all. They'd fall on deaf ears. 
his men would be incensed if they went into his tent and found a locker and in it he had his union uniform and once in a while he put it on and goes, you know, I wonder how this still fits. You know, do I look good in blue? You know, his change of mind necessitated a change in his life, even in his uniform. And I'm sure it wasn't merely a duty that he donned the new uniform. For him, at least, it was a joy to serve that side. Well, those who are in Christ, we have been transformed from darkness to light. We've switched sides, not in a battle between states, but in an eternal battle for the soul of every person. It's a joy, not a duty that we take off our sins, that we renew our minds, and we put on the deeds that reflect Christ, that image Christ to this world. What a joy to be able to reflect Him so the world might know the glorious nature of our God and Savior. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we want to be more like you. And yet there is that battle. That battle where we want the old. We want to go get that old uniform out and put it on again and see how we look. And yet, Lord, help us to see the foolishness of our former sins. Help us to delight in following you. Lord, if there are any here this morning who have seared their conscience, who are no longer hearing your warnings, would you soften their heart again? By your grace, would you help them to hear and heed the message that there is joy in you, that there is hope, but there is also serious consequences for those who do not turn. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.